Good morning. If you'll turn with me, today's sermon is from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down all at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone, anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this man, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the stories in it. We thank you that through it we can see you and know you better. We pray that your Holy Spirit works as we think about you, think about your word, think about who you are, what you've done, and think about what you've done for us. Let it be more true and more real and more beautiful and more lovely than anything else in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have any of you guys ever been stuck? Felt like you had nowhere to go, nowhere to turn to, no answer for your problems. Maybe you could think about a time when you were stuck on the side of the road with a flat tire, and you open the back and the spare's not there, or the spare's flat, or you're missing a piece for the, the crank to get the car up. Maybe you could think about a time when you were stuck in a bad relationship, or maybe a time when you were stuck in a job that you really, really hated and didn't get along with your boss or a coworker, right? And I have a story for you about a time when I was stuck. It's, it's a funny story. It's when I was a kid. I was about seven or eight years old, and I was over at Maureen Bishop's house playing with her and her kids. I guess I wasn't playing with her. I was playing with the other kids there. Um, she was the mom doing her mom stuff. And for whatever reason, I've, I've always been kind of like this when I um, touch things and feel things. Like I mentioned earlier, the, the texture of this pulpit, feeling, feeling it, or if I walk along a wall that has wallpaper on it, the texture bumpy, I'll run my fingers on it, or it has those lines on it, I'll go brrrr. Um, but sometimes I would climb into things and see if I could fit into things or see if I could fit my hand in there, you know, that kind of thing. And so she had a, a chair at her house with four wooden legs and it had the crossbars on it, you know, so you have like a square there. And so I, I decided, for whatever reason, I'm going to stick my head in there. And so I stuck my head in the chair and then I started to panic because I couldn't get the chair, my head off the chair. And so I'm, I'm and pulling in, pulling it, can't get it off. So I stand up, the chair's on my head, and I start screaming and crying. And I, I run to Miss Bishop for help. And I, I'm panicking. I have all this fear running through my, running through my head. You know, how, how am I going to get this chair off? What if I'm stuck like this? What if the chair stays stuck on my head? What am I going to do? What if, you know, what if people see me and I get embarrassed? What if they have to get a saw and cut the chair off? And what if it hits me? And, you know, and of course, as you can see, the chair's off my head. It didn't stay. Uh, when, you're, when you're seven or eight, those kind of thoughts run over your head. And of course, Miss Bishop, she just, like a good mom, she had me calm down, sit down. She turned, got the chair right off my head. Uh, but in that moment with the chair stuck, I was, I was, I was stuck. And I was full of fear. I had all these, these fears running through me. And today's sermon is about someone who's stuck. And he needs to get unstuck. And of course, as you just heard the end, he does get unstuck. 
this is one of my favorite stories. We do it, I mentioned we do Kids Club with our kids a lot, and every summer we do this story with the kids. And it's kind of a funny story. You know, you have the, the, the tall little man, and when, when we do the story, we have kids act out a Bible story. And so we'll usually get the tallest person we can to pretend to be the tree, and we'll get the shortest, littlest kid we can get to be Zacchaeus. And so the visuals of it are fun. It's a fun story. And it's a really beautiful story of God's love and His love changing somebody. Uh, we look at this story too, this idea of being stuck. Uh, when, when someone's stuck, they need something outside of them to get unstuck. They need something that's more powerful, something that's stronger than them, something that can hit at their heart, hit at their soul. When we look at people that we think of you know, as, as examples of this, you think of people that are stuck in cycles of drug addiction, or stuck in cycles of violence, or alcoholism. Um, they need something outside them to change. And the story of Zacchaeus is one of somebody who's stuck and needs to change. So when we look at Zacchaeus and we say, well, who is he? What does the Bible tell us about him? It, it doesn't say that much. All we have is this passage in Luke. He's not mentioned in Matthew and Mark and John. He's just here in Luke. And when we look at verses 1 through 4, we can learn some stuff about him. We learn five things. We learn, first off, he's from Jericho. He's wealthy. Um, I lost my hands there. He, uh, he's, he's Jericho, he's wealthy. He's a t I was thinking about my fingers and trying to do them right and not messing up, and then I messed it all up. Uh, he's from Jericho. He's wealthy. He's a tax collector. He's short, and he wanted to see Jesus, right? That's all the backstory we have. And it's, it's interesting because it's more backstory than most other people in the Bible. A lot of times there's just a blind man that appears. Or there's you know, someone who's, who's sick that needs to see Jesus. But from that backstory, we can gather a lot about Zacchaeus. It says here that he is the chief tax collector, or the head tax collector. And it's important for us to know this. You may already know what a tax collector is and what a tax collector did in the Bible times. But in Roman times, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have cash registers that could automatically calculate how much taxes you owe. They didn't have the IRS and computers and checks that would automatically pull out your taxes. So back in Jesus' day, in the Bible times, the Roman tax collectors often would get their position by making a bid. They would, there would be like an auction and people would, would pay to become the tax collector. Then they'd go around and collect taxes. And the emperor might say, hey, everybody needs to pay $5 in taxes. But the average person wouldn't know that. There was no news service. There was no uh, way to distribute this information. And so the tax collector would go around and to, to make the money back from the bid they made, they would say everybody owes $10 or $20 or $50. They could be pretty arbitrary and go to one house and say you owe $10, go to the next house and say you owe $50. And as a, as a taxpayer, you had no recourse. You, again, couldn't, couldn't argue with them. And you also couldn't argue with them because they have a soldier with them. And the soldier would you know, communicating, pay this tax or you're going to you know, get the end. So when you think about this with Zacchaeus, it's a great deal for him because he gets to make a lot of money. He can make as much money as he wants from other people. But it, you also think about it, it, it kind of stinks for him because when he's doing this, he's making lots of people angry. And lots of people angry, not just at the Romans because they're collecting taxes, but angry at him because everybody knows that he's working this system, that he's taking more than he's supposed to, that he's becoming rich. They can see him becoming rich and see his house and see his fancy clothes and maybe he has a vacation home and who knows what he's doing to, to show his money. But he's getting rich, getting rich fast by cheating everybody. And we think about him too, not only is he getting rich by cheating people, but he's working for the Romans. And if you know much about the Bible and the history there, the Romans had invaded Israel about a hundred years earlier, and they had been occupying the country. And as occupiers, it's not a very good position to be in for the normal people. All the tax collectors are working for the Romans. So not only is he cheating his neighbors and family and friends, 
but he's working for the enemy. He's working for the bad guys. And so the tax collectors would have been especially hated by the Jewish people. And when and you think about this, a word that kind of works with that is a collaborator. He would have been seen as a collaborator with the Romans. And I, I like history, and I like World War II, and if you ever watch any World War II movies, you may see the Allied army sweeps into Belgium, and they liberate Brussels, and it's all happy and exciting. But then right after that, what happens is the people that have been working with the Germans kind of get their just desserts. You see that oftentimes they would be murdered, or lynched, or tarred, or feathered, or paraded through the streets, and trash thrown at them. Sometimes they have to wear signs saying what they did to collaborate with the Germans. And there's a special hatred that's given to collaborators. There's a special hatred that's even more than the enemy. So the Romans have you know, this hatred for them, but the collaborators, that, their hatred for them is way higher because not their enemies, but they're, they're traitors. So we can see that with Zacchaeus, that that's what he has done. He has been someone who's doing that. It also says that he's wealthy and he's a head tax collector. So it means he's doing a good job. He's doing a good job of cheating people. He's doing a good job of taking from his neighbors. And you can think, well, what, is that, what does that do? What, what are the people like in, in Jericho because of Zacchaeus? Well, there would have been families that couldn't feed their kids because Zacchaeus came and took their last $10. There would have been people that lost their homes because Zacchaeus took more money than he was supposed to and they got kicked out. And it kind of hints at that at the end when he talks about people that he's treated unjustly, that he's going to pay them back. So you can think about how it's hurt the community, how people view him, and how people have a lot of hatred for him, and how individuals have been hurt specifically but then they also have, my cousin was hurt by Zacchaeus. My friend was hurt by Zacchaeus. All this is, is in that mood of the community. And you can think about it too, how does it impact him? When we sin, when we do the wrong thing, it impacts us. It, it damages our soul, it damages our spirit, it further deadens us inside and drives us away from God. So when we think about Zacchaeus, we can think, yes, he's a rich man, but because of how he lives, he's probably alone. He probably doesn't have any friends, and the only friends he does have are probably just there because he has money. All of his relatives have probably turned on him. The friends that he does have, once his money's gone, they're going to leave him. So yes, he's a rich man, but you can also guess that he's alone. He's friendless. And I think you, could, you can imagine this in the story of him being a sad, lonely man. And when you look at this, this story, there are crowds that turn up to, to see Jesus, right? Over and over again, when Jesus appears, there are crowds there to see him. And so there are these crowds, and there are huge crowds. And you can imagine, let's pretend that, uh, I should do it from your direction instead of mine. But say Jesus is coming by, and this is the road right here. And that from wall to wall, there are people, four to five deep, hundreds of people, they're gathered, and they're, they want to see Jesus. Everybody's there, everybody came out to see him. And you can imagine Zacchaeus goes up to the crowd, and he, he, might, he might have done this. He might have gone up to somebody, tapped him on the shoulder, and said, hey, can I, can I get to the front? Can you swap with me? Would, would you please let me to the front? But he taps on someone's shoulder and the person turns around and he looks and it's Zacchaeus. Immediately, what's the reaction of the people in the crowd? They're going to look with him, look on him with hatred. They may spit at him. They may kick dirt at him and, and curse at him. Or they may just ignore him and turn their shoulder. But you can imagine him going up and down the line, asking to get in, asking to see Jesus. Can you please let me in? Somebody help me. But he's not the kind of person that anybody wants to help. He's not the kind of person that anybody's going to give a leg up to because he's hurt people. And then you, you imagine him doing this. Everyone hates him. Everyone, nobody likes him. But then I thought, well, Zacchaeus, he's a rich man, right? And what does a rich person do if they can't get their way? Well, they have money. They can buy their way. He also has influence and power. He could talk to local officials and say, I want you to make this happen for me. Make this meeting happen. 
I, I can again picture him going up and down the line saying, here's $20, give me your spot. Here's $100, give me your spot. He may or may not have done that. He, he might have just been too ashamed to, to do that. But it does say he climbs the tree. It does say he's short. But I have to imagine that there are other ways to see Jesus. But Zacchaeus wasn't the kind of, kind of guy that people wanted to help. And when we hear about him climbing the tree, it, it makes perfect sense. If you're short, climb a tree. Stand on a chair, stand on a ladder, find a, find a tall spot. But on, on the other hand, it really doesn't make much sense. If you're here in the Salt Lake City area, when was the last time you saw an adult man climb a tree? It's pretty rare. It's pretty rare. And the only time I've ever seen an adult in a tree is when they were cutting it down or pruning it, right? You never just see an adult just sitting in a tree. And when you think about it, too, the people you normally see climbing trees is kids, usually little kids. And they're playing because it's fun and you get to climb. But you would never imagine a, an adult, dignified person in a tree. And you never picture a rich person in a tree. He's, again, he's a person, person of position and stature. And he has power in the community. And, but he's in a tree. What's he doing up there? And from that we can see nobody's helping him. Nobody wants to be there with him. He's by himself, literally in a tree. He's a man who's stuck. He's at the end of his rope. He has nowhere to go. He's a desperate man. And he's stuck. So at this point in the story, he's stuck. Of course we know he doesn't stay stuck. He gets unstuck. And it happens because of Jesus. And we're going to get to that in a second. But I want to look quickly at what happened to Zacchaeus at the very end and how he changed. Zacchaeus goes with Jesus. They eat. And then after we see that he's changed because he says, I want to do good. I will give half of my money to the poor. And if I cheated anyone, I will, take, I will pay them back four times more. So we see the man who was doing evil. Now he's doing good. We see the man who's cheated. Now he's trying to make it right. The man who's rich and cared only about himself. Now he cares for others and especially those in need. And he's done a complete 180. He's completely changed. John Calvin says that he shows that he's a change, he has changed from a wolf, not only into a sheep, but even to a shepherd. Not only has he changed from hurting and taking advantage of people, but caring for them, looking out after them, watching over them like a shepherd. He's changed. He no longer does what he used to do, but he takes care of people. And he does all this. It's beautiful in the story. He does all this not to impress Jesus, not to impress the other people, not to make Jesus love him more, but because he met Jesus and Jesus changed him. There's something powerful and stronger than him, outside of him, that changed Zacchaeus and changed his heart and changed how he lives. And of course that strong and powerful force is Jesus. When Jesus sees him in the tree, he reaches out to him. And we know too that there would have been hundreds of people on that road clamoring to see Jesus, calling out his name. But Jesus stops and talks to Zacchaeus. And then why? Why does he do that? Why does he give him compassion and love and mercy? And it's easy for us to say, well, God is love. He loves people. Uh, he loves everybody. And that's true. But then again, why Zacchaeus? Why not anybody else? And the truth is, we just don't know. But he stops and talks to Zacchaeus. And I love this, this picture of when Jesus sees Zacchaeus, what his eyes would have communicated, what he would have looked like when he saw him. Instead of looking at Zac Zacchaeus all of his life, or for most of his adult life, had had people look at him with hate and scorn and anger and rage. But when Jesus sees Zacchaeus, his eyes are different. His eyes are love and kindness and happiness and joy. His eyes would have sparkled because Jesus saw one of God's children. And the truth is, when we trust in Jesus, when we know God through Jesus, Jesus looks at us in the same way. His eyes sparkle when he sees us. He doesn't see our sin and our failures, or our evil thoughts or anxieties or our struggles, our self-hatreds or fears, but he sees one of God's children. 
Hebrews 8.12 says, I will remember their sins no more. Psalm 18.19 says, He rescued me because He delighted in me. And it's kind of a crazy idea but that, that God delights in us. The creator of everything, the maker of the universe, the one who holds everything together. He looks at you and me and He delights in us. He has joy and love for us. He enjoys being with us just like He wanted to be with Zacchaeus. We bring happiness and joy and a sparkle to His eye. And again, you may say, well, I don't know about that. That may not be true. But Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In His love, He will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. And that idea of rejoicing there, it's not just a little, you know, yay, I'm happy, but it's, it's the idea of a party and dancing and celebrating. God delights in us. He, he dances over us. He rejoices over us. And that's happening in the same interaction with Jesus and Zacchaeus. I think about that too with, with Jesus and Zacchaeus' eyes, and I've got a, a story to illustrate that. I, I talked earlier about how a lot of our kids are coming from rough backgrounds, and some of you guys might be familiar with a psychological theory called attachment disorder, and it's a, a theory, and it's, it's pretty true, I think, that infants, babies, are supposed to connect with a caregiver. You know, when you, when you have a newborn baby, you put them on your skin, so they're skin to skin. You look in their eyes, you talk to them, you interact with them, you don't just put them in a box and leave them in the corner. Um, if you're familiar with attachment disorder, it became really famous after the 90s when there were children in uh, Romanian orphanages that a lot of times had this disorder very severely. And uh, a lot of our kids that we work with uh, are on that spectrum, I guess. And many of them have not had good interactions with their parents, and their parents have been gone or uh, abusive or neglectful. And so there's this lady named Nancy Thomas, and she has a lot of literature she's written and stuff she's done on attachment disorder, and she's a therapist who works with kids with this problem. And she has this story she tells about how important your eyes are in interacting and how important your eyes are in attaching. And she talks about how when you're working with a kid that has attachment issues, you always have to be thinking something positive about that kid. And she says that... Um, through your eyes, so much is communicated, you can, you can start attaching with them. And she talks about, you know, a baby and a mother and how, that, that, you know, there's so much time just spent staring at each other and connecting with that baby. And so she has a story about one time she was working with a kid and the kid was, had all sorts of behavior issues and it didn't seem like he was improving, it didn't seem like he was attaching, it didn't seem like, it seemed like he was always, you know, messing up his food and throwing it instead of eating it and he wasn't following the rules and he was trying to hurt others, all these kind of things. And so she talks about how one time she was holding this kid, and she couldn't think about anything positive going on in his life. And she was just racking her brain to, to like, what, nothing's good, nothing's good about this kid, nothing's happening that's positive. And she said that she just had to tell herself, well, this kid, he's growing. Right now he's three foot five, but in a few months he'll be three foot eight. And in a few years he'll be four foot something, and after that he's going to be five feet tall. His body's growing, his bones are getting bigger, his, his body's you know, changing, and he's, he's growing. And one day he's going to be a full-grown adult man. And I don't know what's going to happen to him then, but I'm just going to you know, hope and pray that thing, good things happen for him. And I, I love that story because I've used it several times in working with some of our kids. Sometimes I'll, I'll hold a kid that, that's screaming and crying, and, and it seems like nothing's working with this kid. And I'll just be like, well, they're growing. Their bones are getting bigger. And God's going to work something in them and just pray that God does something with them. Um, but I love that picture of always thinking something positive about a kid you're working with. And if, if you have kids of your own, you know this too. You, know, you, you always, not always, sometimes you get frustrated, but you're trying to think positive about your kid and envision what they're going to be like and, and pray for them and, and hope that God's working in them and, and see how, look and see how God's working every day in small things and in big things. And He is working every day in small ways and in big ways 
not just in our kids, but in our lives and in the world. And again, just holding everything together. But I love that too, that this picture of how God looks at us. And we see it in Jesus looking at Zacchaeus. God looks at us with those eyes of love and grace and kindness all the time, every moment. Even when we're struggling and running away and failing and sitting in a tree by ourselves doing the wrong thing. When we look at this story too, we, we see Jesus having dinner with Zacchaeus. He's having dinner with him. He's communicating to Zacchaeus and to the community that Zacchaeus is loved and cared for. And by eating dinner with him, he's showing that he's family. If you think about your own situation, who do you generally invite over for dinner? You invite over friends and family. You're not inviting strangers off the street generally to your home. He's eating with Zacchaeus to communicate his love for him, that he delights in him. And uh, when I think about this example of delight, um, one of my favorite examples is a puppy. And if you guys have ever had a, a, a dog, if you've ever had a, a litter of puppies, a few years ago my dog had some litters of puppies and it was a lot of fun. It's, it's really weird because puppies, uh, when you open the gate or open the door, they just come running with joy. They're so excited and they're happy to see you and their tails are wagging and they pee themselves and they jump and fall down because they don't know how to jump. But they love you so, so much. And if you ever have your own dog, it's like this too. You're, you're gone for, um, for work for the day. You come home. They're wagging their tail. They're excited. They love to see you. They want to scratch on the head. If you've been gone for like a week or two and you come home, they, oh, they're so happy to see you. They're so, so happy. And... <clears throat> You can also think about this um, in, in relationships, right? If you've ever been in love, you know what it's like to see um, your, your person, again, uh, how your heart jumps when you see them, if you haven't seen them for a while, how your, your eyes sparkle when they're with you. Uh, those are examples of delight and love. And God delights in us. He loves us. He wants to be with us. We also see in this story that Jesus loves the needy. He loves the poor. He loves those who are hurting and in pain at the end of their rope. He loves those who don't have any friends, who are all by themselves up in a tree with broken hearts. And we know why. Zephaniah, which I referenced earlier, says, God is a mighty warrior who saves. God sees things in this world. He says, that's not right. I'm going to fix that. He sees a guy stuck up in a tree and says, come down. We're going to eat dinner at your house tonight. You're not alone. You're not hated anymore. Again, you may think of Zacchaeus as someone who's not needy. He's a, he's a full-grown adult. He's, he's rich. He, really doesn't, he doesn't need anything. But he really doesn't have anything that matters. He's a rich person, but he's all by himself. And if, I love this story, too, because if we're to follow Jesus, if we're to love those around us, if we're to love those in need, love those who are hurting, it's, it's often not that complicated. It can be as simple as being a friend to somebody if you're at school and you see someone sitting by themselves, sit with them, talk with them, try to befriend them. Have a meal with somebody. Be a friend. And by your actions and by your words, communicate to somebody you matter, you're valuable, you're loved. That's what healthy community is, is doing that. And we do it, like Zacchaeus, not to get God to love us more, not to win points in heaven, but because God loves us first. We can also look at this story and say, well, what's our response to Jesus? Are we like Zacchaeus, or are we like the crowd? Because they complain, look at the kind of man Jesus is staying with. Zacchaeus is a sinner. Who are we in the story? And uh, there, there are some of us, and we know we're broken. We know we need Jesus. We know we need His grace. We know that we're sinners, just like the, um, the tax collector in the, the story Jesus tells of, God have mercy on me, a sinner, and he beats his chest. Or are we like those in the crowd? Are we going to be on our knees like Zacchaeus, saying, I'm like him. 
I'm in the same shoes. I don't deserve anything. I need help. I need, I need, I need you to rescue me. Or we can be like the Pharisees and sit on judgment on them. Forgetting who Jesus is and what he's done. Forgetting how he's loved us, how he's brought us. Forgetting verse 10 where he says the, the Son of Man came to find lost people and save them. That's why he came back then and that's why he's here today. He rescues broken people and broken families and broken communities and he brings his salvation and grace to them. He takes people who have cheated and hurt others and they don't deserve anything. But Jesus is stronger and more powerful than our sins. He changes us, he changes hearts so that we can receive his grace and forgiveness. So I pray for you today that you're reminded of Jesus' love for you, of, for, your, for your family, that it can be more real for you today and this week. And I also want to say, if you don't know Jesus, if you've come here to church today and you're like, who's this Jesus? What's going on? Uh, I don't know what this, I've never felt this, I've never seen this. Uh, let's pray, let's talk. I, I will be here out front. And I know that Wes and John are here and they'd love to pray with you. And, and also, be in a community here at church where you can be growing together in that and loving, loving Jesus together and ministering to each other. Because in verse 9, Jesus says, Today is the day for this family to be saved from sin. Yes, even this tax collector is one of God's chosen people. They were reminded that no sin can keep us from Jesus. Nothing we've done or thought can keep us away from God because His love is stronger and bigger than the worst sin and the worst sinners. And he says, don't wait. Know today whether or not you're part of his family. Come to him, because we're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised another week. There's no telling what's going to happen. Know him and follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the stories and the teachings and the lessons in it. We thank you that through it we can see you better, to see who you really are and what you're really like. We pray that you forgive us. Forgive us for our hard hearts that sit in judgment on, on ourselves and on others around us. Help us to turn to Jesus and to see him for who he really is, to know him, to feel his love and compassion work in us. We thank you that you love broken people and sinners and you bring them into your family. In Jesus' name.